friends, good morning. So good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your Bible, uh, your copy of God's Word to um, Mark 13. Mark chapter 13. Let me start with a disclaimer today. We'll be touching on some things pertaining to the end times. And uh, as I always say, uh, you're free to disagree with me. Uh, free in Christ to hold a view of the end times that differs from my own. This is not something the elders require at New Covenant. We don't require you to adopt a single view of what's referred to as eschatology. Uh, you're as long as you believe that Jesus Christ is returning physically to earth, then we're good. That is one thing we must all agree on, his physical return to earth for his saints. Other than that, you're free to hold a view that perhaps you grew up with and that you hold dear. Um, and I might differ from that view as you uh, listen this morning. So with that said, let's look at Mark chapter 13. I'm not going to read all 31 verses here at the outset. I'll read just verses 1 through 4, and then I'll skip down to verse 30 as we start now. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Skip down to verse 30 with me. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help as we look into this uh, text this morning. Strengthen us with your grace, Lord Jesus. Give us hearing ears and seeing eyes. And in particular, uh, let us take your word for what it is. Uh, let us be open to listen to what your spirit is saying through these words. Strengthen me as I uh, preach it. And uh, Jesus, may you be glorified in all that's done. Uh, Savior, we ask this in your name. Amen. You might not realize it, but this morning we come to one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. Uh, together with its parables, uh, parallels in Matthew 24, and the passage we read in, John, in Luke 21 this chapter has given critics of the Bible and skeptics of Christ's claims the, the fodder they need, uh, the foundation they need for their unbelief. You might not have thought of the controversy in that way. Uh, Dr. Sproul comments, No other New Testament text has been used more often by higher critical scholars and skeptics to raise questions about the identity of Christ and the trustworthiness of the New Testament. This is really a key chapter of the Bible. 
and the controversy has raged in decades past um, because of the things that are said here. Why is this the case? Why do critics of Christ and skeptics of the Bible use Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 to fuel their unbelief in Christ and the Scriptures? Well, uh, let me introduce you to the controversy surrounding this chapter. And first, I just simply want to show you what the controversy is all about. And this is primarily because of verse 30 that I just read. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Critics of the Bible and skeptics of Christ's claims have read this verse and noted that all these things up to this point in the chapter did not take place in the span of a generation, roughly 40 years. Skeptics admit that some of these events did occur, but many did not. For example, they look at verse 10, which says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Aha! That hasn't happened, they say. And they especially like to point out verse 26. And, th and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Uh, neither of these took place in the span of 40 years, they say. Jesus was wrong. Jesus was mistaken, they claim. And from this chapter and these verses, uh, a philosopher named Bertrand Russell a uh, philosopher and mathematician regarded as a leading intellectual of his day, he authored a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, concluded that Christ was wrong about his return. And this therefore makes this account of uh, the, the accounts of his life and the rest of the Bible unreliable. He was joined by another skeptic named Albert Schweitzer, uh, who wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And the byproduct of men like this was continued skepticism and increasing doubt about the reliability of Scripture. Again, much of it stemming from this verse. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And since their time... Uh, Skepticism about Jesus, doubts about the Bible have grown and simply are embedded in our culture in America. You might have never heard of the two men I mentioned, uh, Bertrand Russell, Albert Schweitzer. You really don't need to because now so many think exactly as they did. Uh, you were taught perhaps by your teachers about the unreliability of Scripture you hear people on the news all the time question what the Bible says and whether it can be depended on. Some of that stems from this chapter. It's been a source of, of controversy for many, many years. And that skepticism of these men has, it's now the majority report among the general public. Well, Pastor Rob, it seems to me the answer is pretty simple. Uh, the phrase, this generation, must refer to something different than 40 years 
It must refer to something different than the people who were alive at that time. You're right. That would be a great solution. But that's not how Jesus uses that phrase, this generation. Uh, Every time he used this phrase in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's not used in John, he was referring to the people right in front of him. Uh, You can uh, see that just through a handful of examples. For example, this one. Uh, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. And then Mark, we played the flute for you. Uh, This is a continuation of that passage. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And then Mark says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? That's the people who were in front of him. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then the the thought corresponding to that last verse uh, in Luke, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Christ referring to Uh, the sign of his death and resurrection, uh, rising from the dead, uh, like Jonah. They use this phrase uh, 17 times, every time referring to the people who are standing right in front of him. So uh, we find ourselves on on the horns of a dilemma, and the dilemma is this, in case you haven't caught it. If a generation is 40 years long and we take Jesus' words in this chapter at face value, then it seems he was wrong, and neither he nor the Bible is reliable. You know, of course, I don't hold that opinion, and I'm sure you don't either, probably. You might. I don't know. So either that's true, or else we could understand Jesus' words in a different way in a non-traditional way, in a way that's different but entirely biblical. And if we take it that way, then he was correct. And both Jesus and the Bible are completely reliable because everything he said up through verse 31 did happen. This is the controversy that this chapter has caused. Did the events he described take place in the span of a generation or not? Is there a solution to this? And I believe there is, and I hope to show you the solution as we look through this chapter. 31 verses, I won't be able to cover everything in depth, of course. But this is the controversy that stemmed from uh, this chapter in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Well, I want to move on and show you a second thing, and that's the subject of this chapter. What's it about anyway? Maybe you're not familiar at all with this chapter. Maybe this is the first time perhaps you've read Mark 13, or maybe you've never heard of the Olivet Discourse, called that because he gave it on the Mount of Olives. Uh, let Let me talk about the subject, and there are two things, two parts to the subject I want to mention. And the first we've already heard is the temple's beauty. Uh, This we find in chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus has been in the temple these last few weeks. We've been studying, uh, teaching in the temple uh, precinct. He was in this 
uh, covered pavilion. Last week we found him in the court of women, uh, the furthest women could go to the pre presence of the Lord. And they've left and they're heading east toward the Mount of Olives, which gave, gave them a perfect vantage point of this. Uh, and they could see the temple in, in all its, its grandeur. And one of the disciples, perhaps as they left the city, looked over his shoulder and caught a glimpse of the temple and just by surprise because it was so breathtaking. I mean, they'd seen it every morning as they made their way from Bethany uh, to the east back to the temple. And, and they're just caught by the sight of this amazing uh, amazing temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. There's a historian named Josephus who described the temple like this. Listen to it and try to picture in your mind's eye the things he's talking about. Uh, Josephus wrote, now the outward face of the temple in its front lacked nothing that was likely to surprise men's mind or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor uh, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, that is covered with gold, they were exceedingly white of its stones. Some of them were, listen to how big these stones are, 45 cubits in length. The cubit is the span between your fingers and your elbow, 18 inches roughly, I think. Uh, 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. These are massive, massive stones. And as Jesus leaves the temple, for the last time, by the way, the disciples catch sight and they comment how beautiful it is. Uh, so they're talking about the temple's beauty, but note Jesus' reply to the disciples in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus replies with a prophecy about the temple's destruction. If you've been with us through Mark, um, this prophecy should come as no surprise. This is what Jesus' actions have been leading toward throughout Mark. Uh, that the temple is past its prime. Think back to chapter 11 uh, in the passage we usually call the cleansing of the temple. And we studied that and, and remarked that really it was Jesus closing the temple, not cleansing it. Because not only did he kick out the merchants selling animals, he kicked out the worshipers who were going to offer those animals in sacrifice. It was an acted parable demonstrating that the days of the temple were numbered. And the whole system of Jewish worship was about to pass away. You might remember that uh, uh, illustration of the fig tree he used before and after the closing of the temple. And he, was a, he approached a fig tree on their way into the city. It had signs of early fruit, but Jesus found no fruit on it. And he cursed it so that it withered. 
This is yet another parable looking for fruit in Israel's worship at the temple and finding none. Jesus condemned it. His prophecy here is simply the climax. This is where he's been heading all throughout Mark uh, to bring the temple to an end in that center of worship, barren worship, we should say, at the center of the Jewish nation uh, to an end. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's quite a dramatic statement. It's very emphatic. By no means will there be left one stone upon another. Josephus records, who was living at the time, and I witnessed to this event, um, records that that's precisely what the Roman army did. They dismantled the temple as uh, so many pieces of a Lego set we would take apart. You might say, well, what about the Western Wall that we see on television all the time, also known as the Wailing Wall? And by the way, just look at the size of the stones there. They are massive. Um, it's called the Wailing Wall, but it was not actually part of the temple itself, but it's part of the foundation, the platform that supported the temple structure. And so one scholar writes this, what has been implicit in Jesus' actions in the temple now becomes explicit. He openly prophesies, prophesies its complete destruction. The temple belongs to an old order. This temple has become obsolete and God will allow it to be utterly destroyed. That's the subject of this chapter. That's what it's talking about. The destruction of the temple. And I don't think it's talking about anything else. It's talking about the destruction of the temple. And I think we, I believe myself that we err when we think the subject is something different. Well, think of what the impact this had on the disciples. Their center of worship, not one stone left on another. They would have been shocked to hear that a symbol of Israel was about to be dismantled in the future. And so they ask for Jesus uh, for the third thing, and that's signs. Uh, they want to know indicators of when this would happen. They want to know what to watch for as this disaster approaches. Look in verse 3 and 4 with me. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, he's, he, they're finished their journey outside the city and sitting on the mount, looking down on the temple. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus replies to them with four sets of signs. He tells them signs, four sets of them. And that's what I want to point out to you in this third point. Uh, first of all, he mentions some general signs. And by general signs, these are things that would be taking place throughout the world as this disaster approached. This is going to be going on around you, but... 
it's not necessarily an indicator that the temple's about to be destroyed. This is just the atmosphere you're going to be living in. Look at verse 5 with me. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no man leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 6 says that there will be false messiahs, those that claimed to be God's anointed king. And Josephus records several of these men, uh, false deliverers, um, who would rise up and claim that they could deliver people from Roman domination. And so Jesus says about these false deliverers, deliverers don't get caught up in the enthusiasm surrounding those men. They are not God's anointed king. I'm God's anointed king. Be on your guard. He goes on to say there'd be rumors of wars and wars. And these were plentiful in the years leading up to the destruction of, of the temple. Uh, wars in Parthia uh, between, uh, and wars between Antipas and King Aretas, not to mention the Jewish rebellion against Rome. There was broader international conflict as nation rose against nation. But look at the counsel Jesus gives us. Men, do not be alarmed. Men, none of these things should make you uneasy or frighten you. These things must happen. All of these wars and rumors of wars are under the sovereign control of God. These don't indicate these don't even indicate that the destruction of the temple is close. The end is not yet. <coughs> Verse 8 describes natural disasters and famines, and all these things would be happening in the world around the disciples. But they're not signs of the end necessarily. They're signs of human sinfulness. These, there will always be things like this taking place. Those are general signs. And then Jesus went on from here and he gives them signs that will affect them directly. These are more personal signs. Now, this is what you're going to encounter in the time leading up to the destruction of the temple. Uh, he went on to describe those personal signs in verses 9 through 13. It reads like a summary of the book of Acts and, and what took place in the early church. Look at verse 9 and, and follow along with me. But be on your guard... For they will deliver you over to councils. Think of Peter and John uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, the Jewish council. And it says in verse uh, 10, or 9 continues rather, and you will be beaten in synagogues. That's what Paul was up to uh, when he was stopped on the road to Damascus in his testimony. Paul said, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Goes on to say, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. In Acts, Paul stood before the Roman governor Festus and then King Agrippa in chapter 26. And then we get to uh, that sticking point, verse uh, 10. 
And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, Pastor Rob, how can you possibly say that that would happen in the days before the destruction of Jerusalem? How can Jesus say that that would happen in the days before the temple was destroyed? Well, you might remember this verse in Acts 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then broader in all Judea and Samaria, and then and to the end of the earth. And, and Paul confirms that this had taken place in the book of Colossians. He says, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. You see, these guys didn't have a globe like you and I do. When they thought of the world, they thought of the land that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't think of seven seas. They had the sea, which is how they referred to the Mediterranean Sea. And so when they talk about going to the end of the earth, in their minds, that probably meant to the furthest end of the Roman Empire. Uh, the capital, Rome, and then Paul went on to talk about going to Spain later on. So the world was much smaller in their minds. Of course, of course, the gospel hadn't been taken to North America, despite what the Mormons claim. Uh, nor to South America or to Africa. Uh, and the reason it's not, the reason Paul says the, wor the whole world is because their world, in their minds, was the Roman Empire. And at the end of Luke, in Luke's mind, Paul has succeeded in going to the ends of the world because he's in Rome under house arrest, witnessing and proclaiming the truth of God. So these are personal things that, that are going to happen to the men. Uh, it'll affect them directly. This suffering would be happening to them in the years before Jerusalem is destroyed. So these first two groups of signs, Jesus, Jesus says these kinds of things are going to be going on the whole time. But then he moves on to a third set, and here he gets much more specific. Here he zeroes down into something uh, direct and to name things that will directly precede the destruction of the temple. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the abomination of desolation. Notice verse 14. But, and note the contrast. These have all been pretty general. But, now here's something specific. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, uh, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. An abomination is something detestable. Uh, maybe your teacher has called your homework an abomination in the past. Uh, the prophet Daniel spoke of an abomination that makes desolate. Uh, he was predicting, Daniel was predicting that the king of the north would come and desecrate the temple. That happened long before this in 168 B.C., uh, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes built an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offering and sacrificed a pig in the temple. 
which was an abomination that caused desolation. And Jesus' prediction here indicates that there will be another pagan desecration of the temple during the Roman conquest, similar to the one by Antiochus. You might not realize it, there are several candidates for this. One was the Zealots, a political group. They made the temple their headquarters. Uh, they committed murders in the temple. They appointed a mock high priest to carry out temple rituals. Uh, the Zealots completely desecrated the temple. There's another candidate, and that's the Roman army itself. Roman soldiers set up their Roman standards, the things they would march into battle with. They set them up in the temple. They treated these standards with religious awe, and they offered sacrifices to them in the temple. Another candidate for this abomination is Titus, the Roman general who burned and destroyed the temple, as Jesus predicted. These last two being Roman, uh, these last two possibilities, the, the soldiers and Titus himself, agree with what we read in Luke earlier. But when you see, notice Luke doesn't say, when you see the abomination of desolation, he says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And Luke is talking about the same thing that we're talking about here. And Luke indicates it has something to do with the Roman army. Well, whatever it was, Jesus warning to his men that when they saw this detestable thing or person defiling the temple, it was time to leave because unprecedented suffering was about to be unleashed on the province of, province of Judea. Look at verse 14 again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, or it ought not to be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This would be a time of unprecedented suffering for the Jews and a period of suffering unique to this point in history. But fleeing to the mountains, as the Lord instructs them to do, that ran contrary to conventional wisdom. When a, a, a country was under attack, they fled into walled cities. 
because they believed those were the safest places. This is what the Jews believed. And uh, they fled into the city. And so when the Roman army surrounded the city, over a million Jews were slaughtered inside. We rarely think of A.D. 70 as a significant event in the Bible. It's huge. This is a painting uh, trying to depict uh, the chaos and catastrophe that took place. The, the uh, uh, painter is Fran Francesco Hayes tried to capture the carnage that took place when the temple was destroyed. I know you can't see it quite clearly and you probably shouldn't <laughs> see it clearly, uh, but he depicts people, dead bodies being thrown over the wall. Uh, listen to how Josephus describes what took place. I, I, this just isn't in our range of thought when we think about the temple being destroyed. But Josephus said, and I'll try to be as uh, PG as I can, on all sides was carnage and flight. Around the altar, a pile of corpses was accumulating. Down the steps of the sanctuary flowed a stream of blood, and the bodies of the victims killed above went sliding to the bottom. It was suffering and devastation. I don't think that you and I have typically ever thought of in relation to this chapter. It was a significant event. But Dr. Sproul notes that Christians were not among the dead because the Christians had listened to Jesus and fled the city. So Jesus says here at the end, I, I've told you everything. I've told you the general signs that will be happening in the world around you. I've described things that will happen to you personally. But when you see this, this Detestable thing that makes desolate. The temple is about to be destroyed and you should leave Judea. Get out. And Dr. Sproul concludes, it is clear that we do not have to look beyond AD 70 to find a fulfillment of all that Jesus spoke about in the Olivet Discourse to this point. All of these signs were displayed in the years and days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. So if you're tracking with me now, let me bring us back to where we are. Talking about the third thing here on your bulletin. And I've said there's four sets of signs. We've just covered the third set. There was general signs, personal signs, this abomination of desolation. And now there's one fourth set of signs I want to point out. And this is, this is, the, this is the tough one. Uh, this is the sticky one. This is the one you'll be saying, Pastor Rob, you had way too much cold medicine when you were sick t two weeks ago. And wow, um, uh, this is another set of signs that the disciples would see, I believe, at the destruction of the temple. If you want to, you can talk to me at lunch about it. I'll be right here. This is perhaps the most difficult to understand, and it might challenge your view, uh, just as my own view was challenged this week as I studied this. But 
There are three aspects to this fourth set of signs, and I'm going to point those out on a different slide so you can see them. The first is the stars falling. Look at verse 24 with me. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. The traditional view of these verses is that they refer to disturbances in the heavens at the return of Christ. But others point out that this is the same kind of prophetic language used in the Old Testament to describe political upheaval. Listen to the language Isaiah used at the fall of Babylon. For the stars of the heavens and their constellation constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And also the fall of Edom. The Lord says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And then Ezekiel describes the downfall of Egypt with the same prophetic language. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. So one Bible scholar reading these and reading Jesus' words concludes in most of these passages, the immediate references to the imminent downfall of specific nations. Here, the crucial thing is the imminent downfall being described as the imminent downfall of Jerusalem, of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Dr. Sproul concludes that the same language is used in the Old Testament, speaking of other nations that fall. Here it's speaking of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, well, there's another aspect that's even tougher. The sun coming. The stars falling was the first one. The sun coming is, is the next aspect. Look at verse 26 with me. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, Jesus is using prophetic language here. And by that, I mean he's borrowing language from the Old Testament. He's borrowing language from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that most of us don't think of when we read the Olivet Discourse. We take this sentence at face value, but here's what Daniel wrote about and, and what Jesus is referring to. Uh, Daniel writes in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. <coughs> Daniel's vision is not referring to the second coming of Christ. What is Daniel talking about? He's talking about the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. He's talking about Christ ascending in power to the Father's right hand. 
Hebrews says as much. After making purification for sins, <coughs> he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, he probably meant that they would see evidence that he's ascended to the Father's right hand and is now ruling the heavens, or ruling the nations. And the evidence that he's ascended to the Father's right hand and is ruling the nations is the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of the Jewish era. That's what he meant when he says, and they will see the Son of Man, that he has come in clouds with power and glory, is reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and has uh, determined that Jerusalem would be wiped out. So that's the second aspect, and one more to show you. The messengers gathering. This comes in verse 27. Uh, it says... And they, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds <coughs> from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Traditionally understood as Christ gathering his saints at his second coming. However, the word messengers could, uh, angels could refer to messengers. In other words, this verse could be a reference not to Christ rapturing his saints, but the spread of the gospel in the era of the early church, gathering his elect from the four winds. So in this fourth set, admittedly the toughest set, it involves stars falling, the sun coming, the messengers gathering. And this concludes these signs that Christ gives his men about when the temple would be destroyed. And so we come. I hope you're still with me. And if you're not, just come back now. Now's the time to come back. For what I think is a very, very powerful conclusion. Now, if you take this chapter the way I've been trying to explain it this morning, you are left with this amazing conclusion. And let me explain... Uh, three parts of this conclusion. First, there's um, a mention of a fig tree in verse 28. And Jesus says to his men, still on the Mount of Olives, still talking about the destruction of the temple, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, what I've been talking about up to this point taking place. When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. We're in uh, North Georgia. Our trees are budding. Uh, mine are, at least. There's new growth on the limbs. And so we conclude from this that spring is right around the corner. And that's what Christ is saying here uh, just as a fig tree is a harbinger of summer, so these things I've been describing are a harbinger of the temple's destruction. When you see them happening, you know that it's about to be destroyed. There's another part to this, and that's this generation. Here we've talked about this already in verse 30. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But if we understand this generation to mean what it's meant throughout the Gospels, here we have a very solemn statement from Jesus assuring his men that everything he has said up to this point will occur in their lifetime, including the destruction of the temple. And finally, look at what he says about his words in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. With this statement, Jesus places his words on the same level as Old Testament scriptures. Because Jesus had said this earlier, Truly I say to you, not, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, this letter I, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And here Jesus puts his words on the level of Old Testament Scripture. His words are just as sure, just as reliable as the rest of Scripture. They will not pass away. It's a very powerful way to end, for him to end his discourse and a great encouragement for you and me. For everything that he described up to this point took place exactly as he said it would in 70 A.D., if we understand this chapter the way I've tried to explain it, in a way that's different from the traditional way of understanding it, but still a biblical way of understanding, this chapter can no longer be used as fuel for doubt and skepticism about Jesus and the Bible. Nobody can use these verses to suggest that Jesus is not the Son of God and that the Bible is unreliable. The fulfillment of these events in 70 AD gives you and me assurance and I dare say certainty that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and the Bible, his words are absolutely reliable. If we understand it like this. Again, let me quote Dr. Sproul. If any text should prove Jesus' claims of divinity, it is this one. He clearly prophesied the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, along with numerous accompanying events years before they happened. This is predictive prophecy of the highest magnitude. Such accuracy also argues strongly for the divine inspiration of Scripture. How do we resolve the controversy surrounding the Olivet Discourse? How do we answer the skeptics who point to this chapter and say, Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be because not all of this happened? How do we respond to critics who say, pointing to these verses, who say the Bible's not reliable? We resolve the controversy by understanding four things that we've looked at. Uh, we understand... Uh, the conflict by looking at, first of all, the, what they claim about this, that these didn't take place. We understand the subject, that this is about the temple and the temple's destruction. 
We understand the signs that Jesus said would precede the temple's destruction. Four sets of signs. And then we come to the conclusion that Jesus did. His word is utterly reliable and absolutely certain. He was who he claimed to be the Son of God, and his word to us is absolutely reliable. So if you're sitting on the fence today and you've been using the arguments of the critics and the skeptics to delay trusting in Christ, or, or if you've been fudging and saying, well, I'm not sure it's true, then, then hear what Jesus said. This, this happened as he predicted. The Bible is reliable. What it says is true, and you can trust it, and you can trust him. He is the Son of God, and he calls you to, to turn from sin to trust in him as your Savior and Lord. If you've been holding back because you're not sure about the Bible or Jesus, then please let this sink in. This, is, this demonstrates that he was who he said he was, and the Bible is reliable. I pray that it encourages you saints and I pray that it might bring clarity to this often misunderstood chapter. And if you're confused, if you're angry, if you're disappointed, come and talk to me at lunch. And uh, uh, most of you won't. You'll just go home and think, oh, Pastor Rob. But if you want to talk about it, I'm glad to talk about it with you. Uh, at lunch or at some other time. But even for you, uh, saints, uh, followers of Jesus, the impact of his conclusion is tremendous. It happened. Proof positive that he's, he is the very Son of God. Proof positive that his word can be trusted. And so if this took place, you can trust also, fear not, for I am with you. I will help you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you can trust this chapter, you can trust that verse. That he will be with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would make this chapter clear. What fog remains, you would blow away. Uh, Jesus, strengthen us. Help us to grow in grace as this has perhaps stretched our understanding of, of uh, the events around the end time and the destruction of Jerusalem. Use us to uh, conform us to the image of Jesus, your Son, Father. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So all the people who disagreed with me get up and leave. <laughs> Just a joke. Just a joke.